Welcome to Palm Vista Community Church as we begin our series, a new series in the book of Jude. So Jude was one of Jesus' flesh and blood brothers. He he calls himself the brother of James in the first verse of Jude, and James is Jesus' brother. He wrote this letter sometime, I believe, in the mid to early 60s A.D., We've just finished a series from 2 Peter, which was written right around that time. In fact, many theologians would say that Peter didn't borrow, but had Jude in his possession. And when he wrote 2 Peter, he was kind of using some of Jude's stuff. We all know that the Holy Spirit is the one who inspired them both. As a matter of fact, here's an interesting thing for you to do, kids. When you go home today... Take a look at Second Peter, take a look at Jude, and find all the verses that are similar, are very similar. There's a lot of them. And Jude was writing to a specific church with a specific problem. Here's the thing. We don't know which church. But we do know which problem. Because he defines it for us here. And actually, it's the problem of every church. Not just in first century Turkey, most likely he was writing to a church perhaps in Turkey. The early church began pretty much in Turkey. The seven churches of Revelation were all in Turkey. I was just in Ephesus two weeks ago. But the problem wasn't just for that church in the first century. It's for the church in the 21st century. And here's the problem, church. The problem was that there were, there were intruders. There were people that were making their way into the church and they were teaching false doctrine. They were teaching things that were not accurate about God and they were living godless lives. And they were saying, basically, it doesn't matter how you live. You want to be sexually immoral? You want to lie, cheat, and steal? No problem. Jesus isn't coming back. Live like you want. And they were beginning to threaten the church from within. And Peter addressed it, and Jude addressed it. The church needs those who would contend for the faith whether it's first century church or 21st century church. And that's, in fact, the title of this message Contenders. Contenders. God is calling us to be contenders for the faith that He Himself delivered to us. And we're going to be reading this morning Jude verses 1, 2, and 3. Jude only has one chapter. So when I say Jude 1 to 3, it's not chapters 1 to 3, it's verses 1 to 3. So as you're turning there, let me illustrate to you from a recent study entitled The State of American Theology in 2016. It was conducted by Lifeway Research, which is the Southern Baptist Research Branch, their bookstore and all that, and it was commissioned by Ligonier Ministries. You ready? Seven in ten evangelicals. I'm not talking about heathens. I'm not talking about the unchurched. I'm not even talking about our, let's say, uh, non-Protestant brothers and sisters. I'm talking about evangelicals, people that self-identify. I'm an evangelical. I'm a believer. I read my Bible. Seven in ten evangelicals, 70% said that Jesus was the first being created by God. This is a heresy known in the early church as Arianism, which the Council of Nicaea, 
Council of Nicaea, in 325 AD, condemned. 60% of evangelicals, 6 in 10, agreed that the Holy Spirit is a divine, is a divine force, but not a personal being. 60%. 30%, 3 in 10, indicated that the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, is not actually equal to God the Father nor God the Son, in direct contradiction to Orthodox Christianity. of evangelicals believe that God accepts worship from all religions, including Islam and Judaism. 60% of evangelicals believe that heaven is a place where all people, universalism, will ultimately be reunited with their loved ones. Former Newsday reporter Kenneth Briggs spent two years traveling the United States trying to find biblical the state of biblical literacy in America. He wrote a book entitled The Invisible Bestseller, Searching for the Bible in America. And you know what he found? In so many churches, so many churches that the world would say are successful, growing churches. What is being preached is a Bibleless alternative version of Christianity. That though the Bible is venerated, but it's venerated as a museum museum exhibit. It is treasured like the artifacts would be treasured that I saw in the Vatican Museum, in Jerusalem, in Ephesus, in churches all over the Middle East that I visited. People venerate these things, but they're artifacts. They have no life. Less than half of the country can name the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The core of our faith. The gospel first delivered to Abraham. The gospel first delivered by God. The creation. Half of the people think that John the Baptist was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. If we believe what Jesus said, that the truth will set us free. If we take the call to make disciples and teaching them all that he has commanded, then we must take seriously Jude's word and God's word through Jude for us to contend for the faith. So let's hear that word. Jude, verse 1. Jude. By the way, Jude's at the end of your Bible. A little easier to find than like the minor prophets. Jude, but it is small, so sometimes it can hide, you know what I mean? Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, comma, beloved in God the Father and kept for, or I think actually by, Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. In the first century, when they sent letters, it was very different from how we send letters today. Today, you could type a letter, hit a button, and the recipient instantly gets it and opens it. Or, if you're really an ancient of days, that is to say over 50 like me, you may actually write a letter. I actually wrote a letter recently. Yes, wrote it. Put a stamp on an envelope. Put it in the mailbox. It's like, what? But even then, the recipient's going to get it in a few days. Not so in Jude's day. 
In Jude's day, it may take weeks, even months, for the recipient to get the letter. As I was walking through Ephesus, as a slide will display, this is in Turkey. Ah, this is your country. Jocelyn, this is your, this is your country. God bless you. There's, here, there's a Kleenex right here. I'm going to put it right here. Okay, here you go. <laughs> okay. You're welcome. You guys are like Hispanics, okay? Turks are like Hispanics. Very emotional. I love that. Your head gets all red and you're laughing and crying. And remind me of Sergio. Um, a little more hair than Sergio, though. Um, so this is, these are the streets of Ephesus. I was just there two weeks ago. And I'm walking these streets and I'm imagining what it was like for Jude to maybe live in a city like that or write a letter to people in a city like that. And when he wrote the letter, this is what he would do. He would write the letter and he would say, all right, Tim, Tim, are you going to go? Are you going to Jerusalem? Yes. All right, Tim, you're a believer. Yes, you love God. Yes, Tim, here's this letter. And then he would hand them this letter. And on top of the packet would be directions when he gets to Jerusalem, how to find the recipient. Let's say, let's say a guy named Lucius, who's the leader of, a, of one of the churches in Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, church, David Helm, in his wonderful commentary, writes the following. Archaeologists have found documents from the first century when this was all built. This is like from 62 AD, almost 2,000 years ago. These, these stones are still there. The amphitheater is right around the corner. It's unbelievable where the riot took place in Acts 19. But we, archaeologists have found documents from the first century that contain a letter as well as a set of directions to a house. Helm writes, with a bit of imagination, we can envision it being scratched out by Jude and given to his faithful messenger, Tim Kelso, now turned letter carrier, who promises to deliver the mail. Tucking the letter into his garment, the traveler set out. We can envision this honest traveler arriving at his destination perhaps days, weeks, or months later. And in keeping with his assignment, he pulls the note of directions from its secure place of hiding, looks at it hard, perhaps reading it for the very first time, and he gets to a city like this. Now this next slide is of Naples, and this is the city Herculean which the, the volcano Vesuvius covered in ash, and it was perfectly preserved. And when they dug all the ash out, the city is up on the upper level there. These, this happened in 62 AD. Mount Vesuvius uh, erupted in 62 AD. So this is the time when Jude was writing. And this is what it looked like. So old Tim's walking through this city, and he pulls out the instructions that Jude gave him on how to get to Lucius's house. And he reads the following. From the moon gate, walk as if towards the granaries. And when you come to the first street, turn left behind the bathhouse, where there is a shrine, and go westwards. Go down the steps and up the others and turn right. After the precinct of the temple on the right side, there's a two-story house. And on top of the gatehouse, a statue of fortune opposite a basket-weaving shop. When you arrive there, shout, Lucius! (laughs) Can you just see Tim doing that? (laughs) You better be here, buddy! (laughs) I mean, as he's walking through these streets, he's carefully, you know, it's been weeks, months, he's got a letter. And when he shouts Lucius, in the near distance, one emerges rather excitedly into the light from beneath an archway. Maybe that one on the left or down the street. 
or from behind a door. His feet make quick work across the stone toward the sound of his name. He arrives with interest for the unknown voice means that mail has come and with it the likelihood of a letter and news from far away. For a time, the two speak. They exchange questions on what is happening abroad. They talk of distant places. The messenger gives Lucius an update on the welfare of Jude and the church. Man, I hope this comes alive to you. This really happened. This letter was really written. And it is God's hand to us. And it went down streets in the first century. And God superintended it to get to its recipients. And it's coming to us today, 2,000 years later. And I pray that it encourage you every bit as much as it would have encouraged Lucius and the little church, the little church that met there in Turkey. Samir. The little church, the weak little church in the face of a huge government empire, but a mighty God. And this is what God says to us. He says to us that called believers contend for the faith. That's the... Main point, I believe, of this message. Called believers contend for the faith. Point one, called believers. Let's go to that with our sanctified imaginations to that first century scene with the news of Jude's letter arriving and Lucius broadcast it out and throughout the city. And as David Helm writes, when the mailman raised his voice to announce its arrival, Lucius would not have been the only one smiling from behind the shadows. Gobs of people would have appeared. Can you see them? Moving in close with anticipation and excitement. Running in from the marketplace or the agora, which is what they call the marketplace there. Running in from the fields along back alleys, big boulevards. Hey, Lucius has a letter. All those people. God's people. Running in anticipation and with a spontaneous church meeting now underway, the letter of Jude would be read aloud to everyone. To everyone. The letter of Jude would have been read aloud to believers who were hunkering down in a Roman Empire that was growing increasingly hostile. Can you relate to that? In a church where there were people teaching things, claiming to be leaders, and they were denying Christ's return. We've heard that the last several weeks from Corey's messages on Saint Second Peter. They were living godless lives. They were saying, don't worry about Jesus coming back. Do whatever you want. Marry whomever you want. doesn't matter. If it feels good, do it. And it wasn't true. And they were wondering, what's going on? And they get this letter and they would have felt this comfort and it arrives at just at the right time. They needed comforting for the task of contending for the faith like we do. And the very first thing they heard was a reminder that they were called by God himself. Look at that. Verse one, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God, the father and kept for or by Jesus Christ. This is the comfort I want you to hear this morning. Because you may be like that group that gathers around Lucius to hear this word. And you're thinking, oh man, contend for the faith? It's going to be hard. I mean, you hear Samir being threatened to be thrown off of a ferry into the water And you go, Samir, I'm glad it's you, buddy. (laughs) 
You know, I'm, a, I'm an American Christian. We're not used to that kind of treatment. But you sense it's coming, don't you? You sense that your stance on a biblical marriage is going to get you in trouble. Maybe in the schools. Maybe at work. Maybe with your boss. You hear rumblings of things happening. And what God wants to tell you this morning is that, that you're called. God called you. And he called you by name. And then when you ask yourself, what does that mean? Jude tells us, he gives us these two participles. He says, those who are called, look at the text, verse 1, comma, beloved in God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. So what he's saying to you is, I, God, the one who's over Caesar, the one who's over whatever president, male or female, will be ours in the near future, or president who's presently over us right now. Whatever system, whatever finances, whatever thing that's happening, I, God, call you, Lucius. I call you, church. I call you, Palm Vista. But listen, it's, it, I call you, Manny. I love you, Patrick. I love you, Ashley. Hear God say that this morning because he is going to tell you to contend for the faith and he is serious about that and he will have his contenders for the faith and it's not going to be easy like Samir said. It's not easy. But he loves you. He loves you. That's what it means beloved there. And he doesn't love you because of anything you've done because newsflash You are not lovely in that way to God. I know that's a little non-PC, but it's true. Why? Because we're all born with sin, and God is holy. So something had to happen for him to love you. And if you're not a believer, if you're here this morning, I appeal to you. God loves you because of what Christ did, not what you do or can do. That's good news. This God of all the universe has called me, that means that he set his love on me. Probably what Jude was referring to here in verse 1, he probably was thinking about Isaiah 42 on the screen, verses 1 to 4. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Isaiah wrote this 700 years before Jude wrote what he wrote, and Isaiah was prophesying about Jesus Christ. What God is saying is, I want you to contend for the faith, but I want you to know before you start contending, you're my called ones. That means that I love you. I love you in Christ. He was the original called one. Existed eternally. But that he is the son of God. He is the called one. He is the perfect one. And you are in him. So I love you in him. I keep you in him. What does this speak of? This speaks of the grace of God in this task of contending for the gospel. 
It's not by your ability. It's not by my ability. It's not going to be about how strong you are, how right you are, how, what kind of a you know, great um, debater you are so that you can win the point. This is God who's called you and made you his son in Christ Jesus, his eternal son. That gives Lucius a lot of confidence. It gives Juan in Hialeah a lot of confidence too. Gives Al in Miami Lakes a lot of confidence. Because it can be daunting, this task of being a contender. Later on in this Isaiah 42 passage, in verse 6, Isaiah says this, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness, I will take you by the hand and keep you. The Father will keep the Son perfectly. The Son eternally then dies for us. And in this text in Jude, Jude says that same Father and Son, that same servant, that same suffering servant that Isaiah 42 mentions, the one whom God called and loves and keeps eternally, always has, always will, who is now Lord of all, Jesus is Lord over Caesar, Lord over the government of the United States, Lord over whomever is the president, that same one is going to keep you. Lucius, Al, as you go contend for the gospel. The one for whom we are contending is the one who keeps us. That's good news, man. Because he's in heaven. I'm here. Right? You go to the fight. Oh, but why don't you go to the fight? <laughs> no, no. Go. I'm contending. I'll keep you. Well, but I'm the one's physically there. Yes. But I was physically there. I won the fight. I won the battle. I'm in heaven. I'm ruling. Now, trust me. Trust me. You, you know what I love about this text? is that Jude says, you are called ones, you are beloved of God, and you are kept of God, and you are servants of God. Notice again how Jude describes himself. Jude, comma, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now, everybody agrees, James is Jesus' brother. Well, you know, those of you who have keen minds realize that if James is Jesus' brother and Jude is James' brother, then Jude must be... Yes, Jesus' brother. All right. There's logic right there. Why didn't Jude say Jude, the brother of Jesus? Why did he say Jude, a servant of Jesus? Because he's saying my identity is in Christ, not my earthly brother, because now I realize, by the way, did you know that Jude probably didn't believe in Jesus while Jesus was on earth? Go back and study that in the Gospels. All of his brothers said, no, I don't believe in him. They did not trust God. They did not believe in God. But after the death and resurrection of Christ, glory to God, Jesus, can you imagine growing up with Jesus? I mean, you knew he was a good kid, but you never would have imagined. And then he raises from the dead, and then you bow your knee, and now your identity isn't flesh and blood, brother of Jesus, but servant of Jesus. Douloi is the Greek word there. And that's what we must be. We must see ourselves as called of God because of his love, not ours, because of his goodness, not ours. I can never earn the calling, but he called it. He gave it to me by his mercy, and I can't lose it. He keeps me. My identity is as a servant of God. Is that how you... See yourself this morning. Is that how you would see yourself this morning? Are you under the authority of Christ? Are you called? Do you feel the Father's love? Do you sense that Jesus is keeping you? If not, if you're not a Christian, I appeal to you to to repent and believe. Bow your knee. Be like Jude who didn't believe 
when Jesus lived on this earth, but after the death and resurrection, he believed. And if you are a Christian, then here's the deal. Our Father who loves us and chose us and keeps us also calls us now to contend for the faith. Point two. This letter comes to us at just the right time in our history today, a time of fierce opposition for the faith. It comes to us as called believers who are tempted at times to discouragement as we can often be in a world where it is tough to contend for the faith. Jude then prays for his first century recipients and he prays for us, the 21st century recipients. Look at verse 2 and his prayer. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. What this means is that in the midst of understanding that I'm called, that means that God has set his love on me because of what Christ has done who is lovely, even though I'm ugly, and he's made me lovely in Christ, and his love is on me because of what Christ has done, and he will keep me, Christ will keep me in the midst of this. When I realize all that, then I look to God, and Jude is praying for us, and he's saying, may you know intimately God's mercy. Verse 2. May mercy, may you know that God chose you solely by his mercy and he will never reject you. You are in his son, Isaiah 42. He chose you before you were ever born. Spurgeon would say, God chose me before I ever existed (laughs) because he certainly wouldn't have chosen me after I was born. He was joking. The point is, he chose you based on his sovereign grace and mercy. I need that when I'm about to go out and contend for the faith when someone might throw me off a ferry or metaphorically speaking, reject me or I lose my job or all my friends or family members. I was just grieving the other day over that in my own life. There are family members right now that that do not rejoice when they see me coming. And it's not because I'm obnoxious, although I can be that too. It's because of the gospel. And and that saddens me. I feel the loss of that. It was when I took a stand. Maybe I didn't do it wisely, right? Those of you who know me. but, But I believe it was the gospel. They were offended by the gospel. I need to know God's mercy when I feel so alone, so cut off, so cut off from the world. I see it coming. I see these things coming and I say, oh God, I just, I need to just soak in your mercy. And it's out of that experience of God's mercy that we then contend for the gospel so that we do not ever contend red faced. No angry arguing. But merciful truth. I can share the truth in love. David Bush preached a message that was so helpful to me many months ago. And he said, you can be kind without compromising. It's out of the Psalms. You know, some of us think if we're kind, we're communicating somehow we're compromising. No. You can be firm in truth, but have grace. You can, you can be kind, but not compromise. That's tough. To do that, I need to know God's grace. Like, currently, every day. Not just a memory, not just something I'll preach on Sunday. I've experienced it today. 
Secondly, peace. I need to experience completely the peace that we have with God through Christ. Look, there was war between me and God. The only way that peace can come to that war is nothing I can do. It's nothing I can do. I can't even sue for peace. I can't even say, hey, time out, God. Listen, I was just kidding. Uh, Can we have peace? Because I see eternity coming and it doesn't look good. Can we just do some peace here before we get to the final judgment? Please. There's nothing I can say. There's nothing I can do. I'm guilty. Jesus came and died for me to win that peace. That helps me when I go into a church where there's division and grumbling and junk and stuff and people. And that's from believers. Not to mention when you step out of the church and people call you all kinds of names. Because you stand up for what the Bible says. It's the peace of God I have in Christ that sustains me. And finally, love. Love Love helps me to stand firmly. Stand firmly. When I want to run, you know, when I want to run, you know, I would jump off the ferry and swim to the shore because I'm afraid they're going to throw me in. You know, I want to quit this thing, man. Like, sorry, I'm done. It's too hard. But no, when I experience God's love, his love that I did not earn, his merciful agape love, I stand. And when the winds come and the pressures come and the rains and, and, and the accusations and whatever's going to come, I stand Not in my strength, but in the love of God. Shed abroad in my heart by the Holy Spirit. Are you standing in that love? Would you agree with with Schreiner when he says, quote on the board, mercy and pardon are are the foundation of one's relationship to God. Are they the foundation of your relationship to God? Or is it your performance and works? Such forgiveness, that's mercy, Leads to peace. Remember Judah saying, I pray that mercy, peace, and love would be multiplied into you. Schreiner would say, such forgiveness, knowing the mercy, then leads to peace with God, which in turn manifests itself in love. That is the foundation upon which we stand as God calls us to contend for the faith. How can I do that, Al? Well, guys, we're going to be meeting this Wednesday night at my house, and we're going to open up this Bible right here, and we're going to study it. That would be a nice way. To get in the gym, right? Remember that that program, Contenders, boxing thing? Uh, Ongoingly in your home. But, But probably most importantly, I would say this. See yourself as a believer who's received God's mercy, who has peace with God through Christ, and who stands in the love of God. Let us let us bow our heads and pray. Worship team, would you please join me up front? Father, I pray that as we transition from hearing your word preached, we would not transition from you, that we would not be distracted, we would not be getting ready to go, we'd not be getting ready to do anything but engaging with you. We'd be still in our hearts. You're not done with us yet. Father, I pray that you would draw hearts to you right now. There may be some that are not saved that you want to save right now and you are sovereign in this. So may they hit their knees and may they cry out for your mercy. I suspect most of us, if not all of us, would be in the camp of those who just need to be strengthening. We're we're standing next to Lucius when the letter from Jude comes and we're going, oh man, contend for the faith. But Lord, may the first thing we hear this morning is that you've called us based on your mercy, that we're your sons and your daughters, that you love us, that you keep us in Christ. May we hear that we have received the mercy of God, that we have peace with God, and that we stand in your love, Lord, that that is what enables us to stand, is the love of God. 
shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, sir, would you shed that love abroad in our hearts? And if, we, if that needs to happen through praying for one another right now, so be it. If it needs to happen by just worshiping in song in a moment, so be it. If it's a lunch, if it's whatever it is, Lord, build us solidly on the mercy, peace, and love of God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let, let us stand and sing, Oh, my soul arise. Listen, if you need prayer, turn to somebody next to you and, and, and ask them to pray for you. If you want one of us to pray for you, come on down, we'll pray for you. But let's worship God. Let's direct our hearts. Let's tell our souls to arise and worship our God. If you want prayer, please come down. We'll be here to pray for you.